So just as a reminder, this class is dealing directly with the doctrine of conversion. So this is the doctrine by which we come to understand how people who were once dead in their sin, far from Christ, now become alive in Christ through the new birth. So if you remember back to some of the earlier classes in this series, you'll remember how we talked about the necessity of regeneration, right? That idea of being new, not merely nice. I mean, being nice is a part of it, but it's really the newness that we're after. And yeah, just two weeks ago, if you remember, Ryan Boudreaux, our brother, was teaching on how the doctrine of conversion actually informs and makes implications on our lives from the point of new birth going forward and how we're called to live a life of holiness, not by our own strength, but by God's grace, right? But this morning, we'll continue to uncover some implications of the new birth as we consider the local church in particular. So what does the doctrine of conversion mean and what implications arrive from, or for, sorry, for the local church? So before we begin, let's just begin by praying and asking the Lord that he would help us this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, God, to be our substitute. That if we repent of our sins and believe in him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And God, that we have been given new life in him. So God, I pray that as we consider the local church this morning, we'd be stirred up to love one another more, to care for one another more, to minister the word to one another, and God, to love our Father and our Savior more. Amen. So I'd like to start just by acknowledging a quick presupposition that we'll be working from this morning. I think it's very clear from the New Testament. And that's this. It's pretty simple. Christians belong in churches. That's the presupposition we're going to work from this morning. Christians belong in churches. You know, whether you look at Hebrews 10, 25, you know, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Or even just a few chapters later in that same book, chapter 13, verse 17, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. And we see here that it's not only assumed that Christians will belong to local church bodies, but that's actually scripturally commanded as a normal practice. How else do you think that someone who's charged with keeping watch over your soul can actually fulfill their duties if you're not in the local church? How else can you fulfill your duty as a church member to minister to one another by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs when we gather together if you are not gathering together? Friends, the responsibilities of Christians lie in all sorts of arenas, in the home, in the workplace, in the public square. However, there is one arena of life which is universally identical for all Christians. And this is in the life of a local church. Not all of you will be parents. Not all of you will work in an office. Not all of you will be thought leaders, whether in the academy or on Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, potentially. <laughs> but all of you who are in Christ ought to belong to and be invested in the life of your local church. So let's begin. Let's start by recognizing two ways that the church either undermines or emphasizes the gospel by how they gather together and the practices that they employ. So we're, beginning, we're going to begin by thinking through two different types of communities, and the way that we'll define these this morning is by distinct communities and designed communities, and we're going to work through what that means in this section here, definitions. 
So as Christians, the primary desire in our hearts, whether it be in our personal time of devotion, when we evangelize our coworkers, when we gather together on the Lord's Day, the primary desire ought to be that God receives glory, right? This is the desired outcome of all of our efforts and striving, that the one who has so marvelously saved us from our sin and our guilt would be magnified and worshipped out of our gratefulness, out of our thanksgiving. So as Christians, we honor God by making sure that the gospel of Jesus is extremely clear, of course in the theology that we espouse, but also just in the ways that we live our lives together as Christians, the way that we gather, our practical theology. So in being both hearers and doers, we're actually telling the truth about the reality of God's grace in our life and our new station in Christ. Therefore, in all areas of our lives, we ought to be seeking to convey the glorious nature of the gospel of Jesus. And friends, it's important to recognize that there's actually a range of effectiveness in this endeavor. Whether we intend to or not, the way that we come together as a church actually has implications with how well the gospel is perceived by the watching world. Does that make sense? The way that we gather, the things that we do when we come together as a church actually has implications for how the watching world sees, views, understands Christ and the gospel. So this will be the issue that we're uh, considering this morning. What practices help local churches best display the glory of God? That's the main question. What practices help local churches best display the glory of God? Let's just begin by taking a look at two different visions or types of community that exist within local churches today. So as Lawrence in his book, Conversion, as he would call them, yeah, designed or distinct. But Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop in their book, Compelling Community, like I mentioned earlier, they take that same image and give it different names, which I think are helpful. So they would understand uh, designed communities to be gospel plus communities. So there's the gospel, but then there's also this other thing that we're really kind of gathered together. It's really the thing that's binding us together. Or distinct communities, which they would refer to as gospel-revealing communities. So there's gospel-plus communities and gospel-revealing communities. Let's begin by looking at the latter, designed communities. So before we get in, I'd just like to ask a question. Find a partner near you, maybe two or three, just think for maybe 60 seconds about this question. What's the weirdest trend that you can recall from whenever you were in high school or middle school or whenever? Just whenever you were growing up, what's the weirdest trend that was happening at that time? It could be Jinko jeans. It could be, I mean, that's the only thing that popped into my head, but it could be ska. I don't know. Anyway, spend 60 seconds with a partner and then we'll come back and hear about the awkwardness of your upbringing.
All right, what are some examples? Who's brave enough to share? There's plenty of talking. I know you get. Yeah, AK. Um, yeah. <laughs> Silly bands. I love it. I'm sure there's some somewhere in my house. Anyway, next. Fidget spinners, man. You got one in my car right now. That's actually true. <laughs> this is going to reveal a lot more about me, I feel like. <laughs> I'm going to stop admitting to these. Any more? Mm. The Caesar fade. Explain it. And the idea is to look like Julius Caesar. Yes. Wow. Like the like the, the bust of Julius Caesar. Yeah, okay, cool. Maybe one more. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, dabbing. Mm. TikTok dancing. Oh, I love it. What is it? What's that game? Not Minecraft, but Fortnite dance. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Right. <laughs> So pretty goofy things that we've all at one point or another done. I know not all of us admitted it, but it's all right. But there's something in us that so naturally desires to fit into a group. And the desire is so strong that sometimes we'll start acting, dressing, listening to bands, going to certain coffee shops or restaurants, dyeing our hair certain ways, dancing certain ways that we never would have if it weren't popular or useful for earning social points, right? C.S. Lewis wrote an essay that I'll commend to you. It's in his book, The Weight of Glory. It's called The Inner Ring, or The Search for the Inner Ring. Uh, basically, he's just saying we'll do all sorts of things if we can just get into that inner ring, that group that we want to be a part of, things that we never would have done previously, never would have done had we not known that the inner ring existed. Right, so we're all guilty of that. But friends, oftentimes this same principle of naturally leaning towards the group where we feel most comfortable and where you have, uh, you have to make the least sacrifice to feel accepted plays itself out in how some churches brand themselves and how they gather. And you have the church for hip artists in the cool neighborhood. You have a cowboy church, a biker church, the church for mainly the well-to-do suburbanites in their 40s. Sometimes there can be so much homogeneity that those Christians on the outside who don't fit the mold struggle to see how they could ever have enough in common to join with them. So when I reference designed communities, and this is what we're talking about, these communities that have been designed with a certain demographic in mind, what I'm meaning to suggest is not that these churches are not true churches. No, not in the slightest. There are many churches like this that I trust meet week in and week out to gather together and hear sermons that tell the truth about the gospel. They sing songs that adorn the gospel. They enjoy sweet fellowship with one another that encourages their hearts, the same as we do. I have no doubt about that. 
However, what I'm trying to point out here, what I'm saying is that there is perhaps little incentive to the world from looking at these congregations that the members are anything more than a group of like-minded people who've gathered to do their thing, right? They're blank. It's like, that's great for them. It's clearly not for me. So in the same way that you could walk past maybe a spin class of young professionals on a Tuesday morning, or you could drive around campus on a Saturday in the fall and witness all of the tailgaters, or you could drive by uh, Fiesta Square and see that same group of high schoolers going to see Spider-Man for the fourth time. In the same way that we view those groups and are not surprised by their uniformity, so it is with many churches today. Many are just not surprised by their uniformity. People can look into the gatherings of some churches, which ought to be diverse expressions of the grace of God, and instead they find themselves in a room where the most obvious connection between those people perhaps isn't their salvation in Christ, but rather their similar life experience, their similar political identity, their similar supported cause or felt need or socioeconomic position. Something that ought to concern us about intentionally building churches around these types of things is that despite any good intentions they might have, to quote Mark Dever in that book, Compelling Community, they're building communities that can thrive regardless of the gospel. It's something we have to avoid at all costs. And friends, that's not just a threat for the cowboy church or the hipster church. That's a threat for every church that we must remember to guard against. Just think how easily it would be when a college student or a single mom or a retiree comes to UBC. How easy it would be to shuffle them in the direction of their respective group. You know, college students go to college. They hang out with college students. That's about it. Married with children, you'll likely end up hanging out with those who are married with children. If you're retired, you'll hang out with other retired folks. And on and on it could go. Friends, we have been equipped and tasked with confounding the watching world with our ability to have real, true, deep fellowship with those that apart from Christ we have nothing in common with. That's what the gospel does. Ephesians 2, when that dividing wall of hostility was broken down, that's actually what's being produced, is supernatural unity. And hear me out, my, my goal here is not to make you feel guilt or shame about having uh, natural friends or natural friendships. You know, those are actually a good gift from God. They help us to easily fold into the body and the life of ministry in the church, which is no bad thing. However, I'm just telling you that maybe it's important to take stock of your relationships within the church and just ask yourself these questions. Do any of my relationships actually confound the watching world or does Every relationship I have make total sense to every non-believer that I know. Can my unbelieving coworkers look at my life and who it's spent with and wonder what in the world is going on there? How does this work? These two together, spending time encouraging one another. Friends, this is one of the things we're aiming to accomplish when we gather. A group of people who are committed to serve one another in love in response to the grace of God shown to them 
and not primarily because of their similarity in worldly categories, but because of their similarity in their position before God. So what I've just described is what I mean to is what I mean when I reference distinct communities. So as we continue to think about the distinctives of gospel revealing or distinct communities, let's consider what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Ephesus. If you'll open to the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we'll begin. And would someone be so kind as to read Ephesians 2? Got to find it myself. Yeah, two verses one to ten. It's a big chunk, but would someone be able to read that? Go for it. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you walked once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Mm. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and it is not yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Mm, amen. So yeah, in this first section of chapter 2, we see the glorious truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is where the whole story of our lives as Christians begins. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And it wasn't until God, out of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Friends, that's the gospel. That if you would repent and believe, repent of your sins and believe in Christ, that he would actually save you from your sin. He would actually unite you to Christ. He would actually set his great love upon you. But God, in granting us saving grace and the faith which is able to respond to that grace, has actually breathed new, abiding, overwhelming life into our lungs. Friends, that's the most glorious and precious truth that resides in the hearts and minds of believers, is that we are right with God. We have been made alive in Christ. The implication that I'd like to show you is that only those who have been born again ought to be members of local churches. It's not always the case. It's not always the practice of churches. But that's what I'm trying to get at, is that only those who have been born again ought to be members of local churches. Additionally, Paul desires that Christians wouldn't just stop growing in grace and knowledge after they've been saved. No, he desires that this new affection would continue to grow and continue to be cultivated over the whole of life. This is where the role of the, lo the local church comes into focus. Someone pick up in verse 14 and read verses 14 to 18, Ephesians 2. <clears throat>
Amen. So Paul here is writing about Jews and Gentiles and how despite any cultural malice that had existed previously, he's saying once they were born again, Christ had actually abolished the dividing wall of hostility, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. A.W. Tozer has a great um, quote where he's illustrating this picture of our unity. Even though we're all different, our unity in Christ. Basically, picture a hundred pianos in a room, and they're all out of tune. They're all just discordant. This is what Tozer says. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard, which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to one another than they could ever possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Friends, only by being given a new heart and by benefiting from the demolition of that dividing wall of hostility are we able to have true Christ-centered fellowship with one another. We can have friendship without it, but true fellowship only comes after conversion. This is where our true unity comes from. Not from our worldly similarities. But what is the purpose of this unity? Let's look at chapter 3 for the answer to that question. There's just one verse I'd like to read here. Would someone read Ephesians 3.10 out loud? the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The gospel in producing new life and love for Christ, as well as unity amongst the redeemed, has now produced a witness of God's glory that stretches even as high as heaven. So when creation looks upon the church, it is meant to behold the manifold wisdom of our God. There's no more clear an image for the world to look at and notice the wisdom of God than to see two who were once at complete odds with one another now linked arm in arm to do the will of Him who saved them. There's no clearer an image of what Christ has come to do, come to produce on earth. Two who were once at odds are now linked to do the will of He who saved them. This is the importance of having a distinct community rather than merely a designed community where we come together based on our similar interests. So without the unity that only the gospel can provide, the kind that stuns and confounds the watching world, without that, the church loses its ability to most greatly glorify God. It's been skewed. It's been misunderstood. So as we consider how God has planned to confuse and confound the world by his wisdom, Let's turn and think about just a few evidences of distinct community. That'll be that third point, evidences of distinct community. So the first indicator of a community that adorns the gospel is found in their corporate holiness. I mean, remember back to what 
Ryan taught us last uh, two weeks ago about our personal holiness. So in the same way, we are called to be holy as a people. It's evident that the Bible, in the Bible, that once sinners have been converted, they will necessarily begin to act in accordance with those new desires. Salvation in varying measures over varying amounts of time will produce increased holiness in the lives of Christians. And the first reason that we are to be holy is because our Father in heaven is holy. So the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So Peter here is pointing out the responsibility that Christians have in striving for personal holiness, which has natural implications for the local church. You know, after all, why would we strive for holiness in our personal lives, yet whenever we gather together, we don't consider it of any value or any worth? Of course not. We would continue to strive in holiness together. And that final verse of 1 Peter 1.16 is actually a quotation from Leviticus 11.44, where Moses bids the Israelites to, quote, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. That phrase consecrate or consecration here helps us to see God's purpose of teaching his people to live antithetically to the world around them. This makes more sense when we realize that this charge to holiness comes in the midst of a whole section uh, outlining the things that are clean and that are unclean. There is meant to be a stark contrast between the church and the world. That's the point. Secondly, we see that our corporate holiness is important in preserving our witness to the watching world. I mean, Peter again writes, 1 Peter 2, 9-12 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war on your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, we have received this commission from God through His Word to make every effort to live and act in such a way both privately and publicly as we gather that by our actions we would proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That's a significant aspect of our corporate holiness that we as God's people would tell the truth about God, about who He is, two people who are still in their sin. It's more than just telling the truth about God to one another. But we have to tell the truth about God to those who don't know God, who are far from Him. Another evidence that marks a distinct community is a church's sacrificial love for one another. That's that point B, sacrificial love, self-sacrificing love. John 13, 34 and 35 says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, 
All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus, in issuing this new commandment, tells us that our witness is dependent upon our mutual love for one another. Jesus, who loved us perfectly, showed this love, how? Primarily by giving himself up on the cross as our substitute. So how then should we go about loving one another? It must be more than merely being friendly and cordial when we gather. It must include sacrifice. It must include the forgiveness of wrongdoings done against you. It must include the laying down of our preferences so that others might be built up in the faith. Friends, having looked at a couple ways that we can give evidence to a distinct community, let's now turn and consider ways that we might foster this community, fostering distinct community. Point A we're going to look at is preaching to equip, but perhaps a better title is just simply ministry of the word. Preaching to equip or ministry of the word. So the primary way that the ministry of the word is exampled in the life of a church is through the preaching of the word on the Lord's day. There's no more obvious venue for ministry of the word than when God's people come together, they quiet their voices, they see the preacher take to the pulpit, his Bible opens, and if you're from a church like I grew up in, you'll hear, thus saith the Lord. Preaching is a beautiful exercise that the Lord has commanded for his church and has provided for his church through the good gifts of pastors and preachers. However, it's not by any stretch of the imagination meant to be the only means by which we receive the word. Good preaching will naturally produce a slew of many preachers. These are people who know the word for themselves. They teach it to their children. They teach it to their friends. They apply the word as a salve to the wounds of their hurting friends. They take the word and correct sin in the lives of fellow Christians. They use the word to remind the despairing of the truthfulness and glory of the new heaven and the new earth. They have taken the word and placed it in their heart so that it can be useful to edify and encourage and correct and build up the body. The word isn't just for our own edification, our own being built up. But even if you remember the sermon from two weeks ago, like we're meant to suffer afflictions so that once we've been comforted, we can now comfort others. Once we've made it through uh, the suffering that we've been through, whenever we see anyone else going through that, great, I'm a comforter now. I have the ability to help, to build up, to encourage. That's what we do with the Word. Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. This is absolutely true of how unregenerate sinners come to know Christ through the new birth, but it's also the means by which injured sheep are given rest and recovery. We value good preaching because it displays the glory, the value, the worth, and the wisdom of God. And in the same way, we ought to come to value and put into practice the ministry of the word to one another. Later on in this morning's lessons, uh, I'll give you some practical ways that we can start to do this. Next, let's consider 
the benefit of praying together as a body. It's another way that we can foster distinct community, by praying together. One commentator says this about prayer. Prayer is an ordinary means to accomplish supernatural ends. It's an ordinary means to accomplish a supernatural end. Friends, when we pray together, we are corporately confessing our dependence upon God to accomplish His will in our lives and the life of the church. So when we confess our sins corporately to God, we're simultaneously trusting that He will be just to forgive us our sins. When we petition the Lord, we're trusting that the God who knows all things will do what is right. When we praise God together, we're telling the truth about God and His worthiness above all creatures to receive honor and glory. However, all too often, prayer in the life of the church can be easily relegated and distorted to merely be a function of moving the band onto the stage after the sermon or giving time for the pastor to take the stage for his welcome address. And sometimes we've just stripped the biblical practice of praying unto God of its efficacy when we use it as this kind of plug-and-play mechanism that helps us transition between the elements of our services. This is why I pray that UBC has been faithful to um, think about what and at what time we pray in our services. That's why maybe if the first time you visited UBC, it maybe felt awkward whenever, okay, the song ends, the guy leading music said, you can be seated, and then there was like a 20-second awkward where we're just sitting like, and then the person who's going to pray comes and takes the pulpit, and they pray. I think that's intentional. Not to say that we want to like, be kind of disjointed in our transitions or anything, but it's just to say that prayer and singing and preaching and reading scripture are each things that we're commanded to do. And prayer is not the glue that holds the whole thing together. It's its own thing that we're doing, right? So be encouraged by that this morning as you go to the main service and maybe we'll be sitting in silence for a few seconds. You might be wondering, so where's the practice of corporate prayer in the Bible? Is it mentioned? That's a good question because if you look in your Old Testament, there's really very few, if any, examples in the Old Testament. Even the Psalms that were used in temple worship were read in the first person singular. So it's, where am I getting this from? But whenever you turn to the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus, you see something really unique. Even in offering up uh, his model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he teaches his disciples to pray what? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hmm. Additionally, if you remember 1 Corinthians 11.4 and 14.15, those two verses, Paul is assuming that those corporate gatherings regularly included corporate prayer. So what's the purpose of corporate prayer in and of itself? Why not just ask everyone at the same time to silently pray to themselves for a few moments at certain points throughout the service? Why not just do that? 
Friends, to put it simply, corporate prayer helps us uh, learn how to pray. It teaches us how to pray. And it helps us to center our affections as a body on the things and people of God as an act of worship. So what kind of prayers are we meant to pray together? Obviously, there are more than what I'm going to offer here, but I'm just going to offer you a quick acronym that I think is helpful in whenever you're praying. How do you think through chronologically, like, okay, things that I need to be praying about? The the acronym is ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Those four. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Some of the ways that UBC works to pray corporately is through our prayers of praise, lament, confession, you know, et cetera, and even our pastoral prayer. Another way we practice this is during our Sunday evening service where various members come up and give updates and then we pray as a body for one another, for those things. Um, so yeah, if you're looking for a way to grow your prayer list or to grow how you pray for things and people of UBC, I would just suggest coming back tonight at 5.30. We'll meet in the chapel. And we'll spend time hearing about things the body, updates from the body, and then we'll just spend maybe 15 minutes praying for them. That's what we'll do this evening. I encourage you to come back. Another great resource for you uh, at UBC is the Be Steadfast prayer um, email that goes out every week. It'll, con- it'll yeah, have updates in it with whether it's weddings, funerals, just ministry updates, etc., just member updates. Here are specific members to pray for. It's a really helpful tool. Also, you probably have a member directory. The last two pages of that are chock full of scripture references and things that can help spur you in your prayer. Things that can help spur you not just to pray kind of ethereally, but just pray the Bible for people. It's a really great tool for you in the back of your member directory. So another way that we foster distinct communities is through spiritually intentional relationships. That's point C, spiritually intentional relationships. Think with me for a moment about the reality that the Bible declares certain activities, even activities done in conjunction with a local church. It doesn't necessarily give them the same level of importance or worth. So when I was a child, I remember spending a good portion of my time at my local church and helping out with things like food pantries, clothing closets, playing pickup basketball with my friends or practicing for the Christmas play or standing outside Walmart for the bake sale. All of these things, I mean, the list just goes on and on. And I'm not condemning these things as wrong, not in any way. However, these things have various levels of spiritual significance and all of them rank lower than the importance of ministering the word and building up the faith of fellow brothers and sisters. So our efforts as Christians ought to be weighed and determined not merely by how much we benefit or enjoy them, though that is a natural factor, but by how effective they are in building up the people of God. So with this in mind, let's be quick to remember that the Bible speaks of some activities as being of little or no worth in the grand scheme of things, despite how much we might love them. So let's talk about the importance of these spiritually intentional relationships. So these are the best and most effective way to encourage, edify, build up, 
correct and show love for God's people. See in the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that one of those fruit is that gives evidence to our being united with Christ is that we have a new supernatural ability and disposition to love God and His church. Similarly, 1 John 2, 10 to 11 says this, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So in Christ, we are given both the ability and desire to love our neighbors. And there is no neighbor closer to us than those with whom we share Christ in common. So let's look at just two quick ways that we can strive to invest ourselves spiritually in the lives of our fellow Christians. First, let's just consider discipling relationships. It's pretty yeah, obvious, just discipling relationships. And so by discipling, I'd like to just make sure that we're not meaning discipleship. So let's paint the difference between those two, discipling and discipleship. So discipleship is the whole of mine and yours following Christ. The way that we read our own Bibles, the way that we attend church services, the way that we disciple. Discipling would fall into the greater category of discipleship. But discipling on its own is the practice of intentionally meeting with one or more Christians in order to do spiritual good for one another. Friends, this can take place by meeting together, you know, a morning or evening or two a week to read the Bible or some other edifying material, and by praying together, bearing one another's burdens. Yeah, naturally, along with reading, discussion, prayer, you'll find it helpful in your discipling relationships to hear the struggles of one another and to begin ministering the word directly to them as a balm for those hurts. So this process of meeting with others to do them spiritual good will naturally have implications in all of your relationships. With coworkers, with family members, with neighbors. It ought to increase your empathy for others. It'll increase your evangelistic zeal once you've been built up by another in the faith. So a second way that we can invest in spiritual inten- spiritually intentional relationships is by exercising hospitality. So discipling relationships, but also hospitality. So what most people think of when they hear the word hospitality is that you invite someone who's similar to you in age, um, stage of life, you invite them over to your house or your apartment, and you have dinner with them. And that's kind of the end of it. And okay, I was hospitable. Well, that's no bad thing. That is just understanding hospitality far too narrowly, let's say. So hospitality certainly includes opening up your home to others, but it also includes opening up your schedule, making time for others to be involved, even in the mundane things of your life. Grocery shopping, household chores, fixing your car, running errands. or Maybe even opening up your scope of those whom you speak to on a Sunday morning. Perhaps it could be very hospitable of you after the end of the service today to go up and greet some folks that you don't know and ask them what they thought of the sermon or the singing or the prayer. Maybe it's opening up your heart to celebrate and to grieve with those who are celebrating and grieving by attending weddings and funerals of members at this church. Maybe even those members who you didn't really know that well. Friends, all of these things, though they may seem small and infrequent at first and kind of spotty, they begin to accumulate and they produce a natural and increasing 
rhythm of hospitality in your life where you're consistently engaged in making yourself available to the members of this church, that you would encourage them. So to end this kind of section on how we can foster a distinct community, let's just consider a few natural um, obstacles to this endeavor. So we're going to think about some obstacles. Um, The first, let's just think about maybe a wrong understanding of staff, church staff, and their purpose. So how ought we think about church staff? Are they the ones who we agree are in place to facilitate ministry? Or do we believe that they are the primary doers of ministry? Sure, specific staff members give much time and effort in preparing to teach and preach publicly, to organize events that benefit the body at large, or evangelize students on campus. You know, a slew of other things. But it's important to remember that church staff ought to never replace or be the primary way that the body ministers to itself. That's the job of the members. The responsibility of staff and of all our elders is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The responsibility of the congregation is found within that previous verse from Ephesians 4.12. The work of the ministry belongs to the congregation, which naturally includes the staff. So this is not to abdicate any responsibility away from the staff, but to rightly orient how we understand the roles that have been given to the church, right? So another way that we can create obstacles for healthy community is in maybe over-calendaring, let's say. This one might seem a bit strange because if you've been at UBC for any amount of time, it seems that UBC tends to have a number of things on its calendar at any given time. So am I hating on UBC here? No, not at all. You know, but I mean, from women's Bible studies to women's institute to youth events, college midweek, you know, it just kind of seems like we're a fairly calendar-dense church. We have things going on on our campus. And friends, I'd just like to make the distinction here that it's important to remember to differentiate between what we expect from our members and what is available to our members. What we expect from our members and what is available to our members. Sure, there are several things throughout the course of the week that could be wonderful, encouraging things to participate in at the church, on campus here. However, there's only one thing that the Bible commands of you to do. And that is gathering together with the saints at the weekly corporate gathering. Right, remember Hebrews 10.25, do not neglect gathering together, as is the habit of some. So I just encourage you to take stock of your personal calendar and work through how you might uh, most wisely spend your time. And if that equates to spending more time at church, pouring into the various ministries here, that's wonderful. But perhaps you feel that it's best for you, in addition to the Sunday services at UBC, to spend time being hospitable to your coworkers and neighbors, creating avenues for evangelism and spiritual conversations. That's also a wonderful way. It's important to note, though, that neither one of those options negates the other. There needs to be maybe a balance of both. Lastly, let's look at how heightening our personal preferences can actually cause disunity. One of the things that many people will talk about in the car after visiting a church for the first time is, of course, the preaching, you know, the music. Perhaps they'll make note of the outdated wallpaper in the bathrooms. Maybe they'll mention that the building where they had Sunday school kind of smelled like mothballs a little bit. 
You know, there are a hundred things about every church that if you sit and pontificate on them for too long, will be sure to grind your gears a little bit. However, it's been well said and uh, I think wisely so that a mature Christian is easily edified. A mature Christian is easily edified. That's not to say that mature Christians lose their acuity or their sharpness on important matters of the faith, but rather it's to suggest the opposite. That those who love the truth of Christ naturally care less and less about trivial matters. So long as Christ is being preached and the word is being taught and we have love for one another, we can resign to say, I don't much care about the wallpaper. I don't much care about the smell of a building. (laughs) So long as Christ is being preached. And friends, just to end, I'd like to give a few short thoughts on how we ought to work to protect our distinct community. That's our point five. And these will be more just bullet point style things that maybe you can go after this, maybe this afternoon and read some of these passages that I'll point out or that are included on your handout. And they'd be helpful for you to consider. So, yeah, the two things that I'd like to just... uh, reference in terms of protecting our distinct community are addressing discontentment in the church and addressing unrepentant sin in the church. So we're going to end on a high note today, okay? Um, Addressing discontentment in the church. One of the threats to unity in a local church is when discontentment sets in. This lack of contentment is such an easy vice to fall into. There are innumerable things that someone could be discontented with in a specific church. Here are four just really quick ways to address discontentment in the life of your church whenever you start to feel it arise. So one, remember the importance of unity. Remember the importance of unity, not just to you, but to God. Remember that Christ, by his own blood, has ransomed people from all walks of life to now come together with the wall of hostility being destroyed. Remember Ephesians 2. So friends, don't start rebuilding sections of that wall that Christ has knocked down, if you can help it. Number two, act like contributors, not consumers. It's really easy to start questioning the way that things are done in a church whenever you have yet to serve that church in any way. I encourage you to just find an area where you can serve so that one, you might just meet a practical need of the body, and two, you might come to realize that most people are really doing the best they can and don't deserve the sharp judgment that you might be willing to offer. Number three, learn how to disagree cordially. A couple helpful metrics to use when considering whether or not to publicly disagree about something are, one, what's the importance of the issue? And two, what's the clarity of the issue in Scripture? Those two things um, can really help you to gauge, is this something that I really need to make a big point about now? But always I would just encourage you that the best course of action whenever you're feeling some of these things and you're thinking, you're thinking is that right? Is this wrong? Are we doing this in the correct way? Talk to your elders. Because more than likely they've heard this previously and they've actually thought through it. And they might be able to help you think through it as well. So yeah, reach out to your elders. Number four, I'm going to be careful here. When is it right to leave a church? Friends, 
Sometimes it can seem like an unforgivable sin for someone to leave a church when they disagree with a stance that the church takes. However, it's important to remember that this could very well be the way that someone shows their love for the church and its people. If someone can no longer abide by the covenant that they agreed to when they joined a church, then the proper thing for them to do would be to go and join a church with whom they could, in good conscience, regularly gather. That could be a way that someone loves UBC. is to not stay and promote disunity, but to go and be unified with a different body. Okay, so that's addressing discontentment. Now let's look really quickly at addressing unrepentant sin in the church. So I think the most helpful way to look here will be to look at Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. That's kind of, we see the chronological pattern of how we ought to address clear unrepentant sin in the life of a fellow church member. So one, if you see unrepentant sin in the life of a member of this church and you have a close relationship with them or a working relationship with them, address that sin privately. Matthew 18, 15. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If you notice a sinful pattern in a brother or sister's life, you should approach them on your own with the hopes that they'll repent. If they do, you've actually gained your brother, as they say. Number two, address sin in a small group. Eighteen sixteen of Matthew. If he does not listen, take one or two along with you. So if they refuse to repent... After you show them their sin, take one or two along with you. This is a second opportunity for them to feel the weight of their sin and to repent of it, as well as to establish the witness of at least two people. That's the reason. And thirdly, inform the church. Matthew eighteen seventeen. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And he, ref- he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and tax collector. If they continue to refuse repentance, Jesus would tell them to share it with the church so that the person might be convicted of sin, thus leading them to repent and to save their soul. After all, repentance and restoration is the heartbeat, is the main thrust of biblical correction. But if they refuse to listen even to the church, this is where a church would practice formal church discipline and remove them from membership can seem harsh to think about excommunication, but what's more harsh? Lying to someone about what we understand about their eternal state now or telling them the truth now so that they might repent? Right? That's the heart of church discipline. It is for the benefit of their soul, the purity of the church, and the glory of God's name. So friends, I hope this morning has been helpful to you in just considering ways that we can work toward greater unity as a body as well as magnifying and clarifying our church's witness to the world. So with that, I'm just going to open up maybe for a few minutes. Yeah, maybe a couple minutes to hear any questions that you might have. Could be from this week or maybe like previous weeks that you'd like to catch up on. Hearing none, I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. 
God, our Father, we do thank you for the fact that you have called us to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. And by his sacrifice, we have been made right with you. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between us and those who are also in Christ. And we thank you for the fact that in the way that we gather and the things that we do this morning, we will actually be proclaiming to the watching world the manifold wisdom of our God. And we thank you for the opportunity to come together to hear your word preached, to sing songs that edify, encourage one another. We've got to pray to you. I pray that you would hear our prayers this morning. Amen.